Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Nelson Mandela began his oration on Monday, April 20th, 1964, with seven momentous words. My Lord, I am the first accused. The first accused. He was referring to his status in what was known as the Ravonia trial, which was being held in the Pretoria Supreme Court in South Africa. He spoke from the dock, a defendant, a man accused. But the brilliance of his words showed that it was truly not he or his friends who were on trial, but apartheid itself, the ruling order of white supremacy in South Africa in the 20th century. Since 1948, the government of South Africa has passed hundreds of laws and thousands of regulations and proclamations concerning apartheid. They regulate the lives of more than four-fifths of the population of South Africa, that is to say, the 15 million non-whites. Yet this great majority of South Africans has had no voice in the making of these laws and no legal means to change them. In myth and in memory, the end of apartheid and the public image of Nelson Mandela himself can be one of the inevitable triumph of good over evil, justice over injustice, right over wrong. As is so often the case, however, the struggle was long, difficult, and its outcome was far from foreordained. And in Mandela's 1964 speech, we can chart the complications and, yes, the passions that led, after too many years, to a new day. We want equal political rights because without them, our disabilities will be permanent. I know this sounds revolutionary to the white in this country because the majority of voters will be Africans. This makes the white man fear democracy. But this fear cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the only solution which will guarantee racial harmony and freedom for all. I'm John Meacham and this is It Was Said, Episode 5, I Am Prepared to Die. The case was formally styled the state versus the national high command and others. A specific issue was how Mandela and his allies were challenging apartheid. They were not passive actors. They were not solely working within the tradition of nonviolence. They had undertaken sabotage against property, 
and were seeking to create an armed force. A lot of people think of Mandela as this kindly, white-haired, grandfatherly figure, you know, holding a baby on his lap. And of course, that is who he was at the end of his life. But when he was a young man, he was a violent revolutionary. He decided that passive resistance in the Gandhian model, which, of course, Gandhi invented in South Africa in the 1920s, didn't work in South Africa for the black majority, and that they had to become a guerrilla movement. This is the Nelson Mandela biographer, Richard Stingle, author of Mandela's Way, Lessons on Life, Love, and Courage, who also collaborated with Mandela on the president's autobiography. Mandela had, 20 years before, joined the ANC Youth League, the African National Congress. And it was a quite a kind of a decorous black middle class movement. And what had radicalized him was coming to Johannesburg and being treated with the kind of disgusting racism that was common then. And it particularly alienated him because he was a black aristocrat. His father was a chief. He'd lived in an all-black world in the Transkei where white racism and British autocracy were distant. So when he came to Johannesburg, he faced those things for the first time, and it became the animating principle of his life to achieve freedom and equality for his people, for the black African people in South Africa. In a society ruled by a white minority, the African has become a virtual alien in his own country. He cannot own property anywhere in South Africa. He is subject to search in his home and in the streets. Every aspect of his daily life, from restrooms to the education of his children to the cemetery where he is buried, is strictly segregated by skin color alone. He is denied, in short, every basic human right, including that of protest. He went underground in the early 60s. He lived for a time at a place called Lily's Leaf Farm in Ravonia, which is where the trial gets its name. Mandela lived there and studied guerrilla warfare, learned how to shoot, and eventually took a trip to the rest of Africa to get support for the ANC. When he came back in 1962, he was arrested and jailed for illegally leaving the country. But it wasn't until 1963 that the police raided Lily's Leaf Farm and arrested the so-called high command of Mkanto Wisizwe, the Spear of the Nation, which was the military wing of the ANC, which Mandela started. And he was the number one person on trial for trying to overthrow the country, trying to end white supremacy in South Africa. Here's how Mandela recalled the opening day of the trial. Our van was in the center of a convoy of police trucks. At the front of this motorcade were limousines carrying high police officials. The Palace of Justice was teeming with armed policemen. To avoid the enormous crowd of our supporters who had grouped in front of the building, we were driven into the rear of the building and taken in through great iron gates. All around the building, police officers with machine guns stood at attention. As we descended from the van, we could hear the great crowd singing and chanting. Once inside, we were held in cells below the courtroom before the opening of what was depicted in the newspapers at home and around the world as the most significant political trial in the history of South Africa. So recalled Nelson Mandela. And he was right. 
it was the most significant of trials. This was the greatest platform he'd ever had in his life. And his famous speech from the dock came about because he decided he wasn't going to take the witness stand and be cross-examined. He decided he would give a statement instead, which defendants are allowed to do. It was a three-hour speech, or more accurately, three hours of testimony about the particular and the universal. And when you look through it today, it's so Mandela-like and so wonderfully old-fashioned because he felt that if you could just explain something to people, people would use their reason and understand it. And it's a three-hour kind of tutorial of explaining why he took up arms against the regime, why he joined the ANC, and his vision. The defense case will commence statements from the dock by accused number one, who personally took part in the establishment of Umkanto and who will be able to inform the court of the beginnings of that organization and of its history up to August when he was arrested. Now, as Mandela recalled, we believed it was important to open the defense with a statement of our politics and ideals, which would establish the context for all that followed. In my youth, I listened to the elders of my tribe telling stories of the old days. Among the tales they related to me were those of wars fought by our ancestors in defense of the fatherland. I hoped then that life might offer me the opportunity to serve my people and make my own humble contribution to their freedom struggle. This is what has motivated me in all that I've done in relation to the charges made against me in this case. I do not, however, deny that I planned sabotage. I did not plan it in a spirit of recklessness, nor because I have any love for violence. I planned it as a result of a calm and sober assessment of the political situation that it had risen after many years of tyranny, exploitation, and oppression of my people by the white. Note his words. I planned it as a result of a calm and sober assessment after many years of tyranny, exploitation, and oppression of my people by whites. We felt that without sabotage, there would be no way open to the African people to succeed in their struggle against the principle of white supremacy. All lawful modes of expressing opposition to this principle had been closed by legislation. And we were placed in a position in which we had either to accept a permanent state of inferiority or to defy the government. We chose to defy the government. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. His sense of moral obligation had deep roots. Born in July 1918, Mandela had been given a name that, in the language of his region, meant troublemaker. As he recalled, I do not believe that names are destiny or that my father somehow divined my future, but in later years, friends and relatives would ascribe to my birth name the many storms I have both caused and weathered. His father was a chief. Mandela himself would be educated in what he called a Christian and liberal arts tradition based on an English model, and would recall being shaped by Christianity. As he put it, the church was as concerned with this world as the next. I saw that virtually all of the achievements of Africans seemed to have come about through the missionary work of the church. The mission schools trained the clerks, the interpreters, and the policemen, who at the time represented the height of African aspirations. So he had this very elite education of Methodist boarding schools in South Africa. And they were like English boarding schools in the 19th century. In fact, he listened to Churchill. He was imbued with, you know, the great English rhetorical language skills. So it was a combination of this African aristocracy and British rule of law. And that was a powerful combination. And that's what ultimately turned him into a revolutionary because those ideals were ones that he didn't see in the society that he lived. The decision had been made that nonviolence would not achieve the desired end, and the end was the dismantling of apartheid. It was an entirely understandable conclusion. The whole power of the South African state was marshaled to prevent black people from enjoying their natural rights. Mandela traced the history of the shift. The African National Congress was formed in 1912 to defend the rights of the African people. For 37 years, it put forward demands and resolutions to the government in the belief that African grievances could be settled through peaceful discussion and that Africans could advance gradually to full political rights. But white governments remained unmoved and the right of Africans became less instead of becoming greater. The resort to violence and to the planning for violence had not been taken lightly. 
this conclusion, my lord, was not easily arrived at. It was when all else had failed, when all channels of peaceful protest had been barred to us, that the decision was made to embark on violent forms of struggle and to fall whom Conto was seizing. We did so not because we desired such a course, but solely because the government had left us with no other choice. It had taken Mandela about two weeks to prepare his testimony, working, as he recalled, in my cell in the evenings. It becomes this interesting kind of counter, at least for me, with King's letter from the Birmingham jail or King's defense of nonviolence. Here you have in a very clear and deliberate way, an argument or justification for violence in light of the violence of the state. Uh, you have the determination of the ANC at this moment that it can no longer engage in nonviolent civil disobedience in relation to the violence of the South African state, that it must engage in military action on behalf of Black South Africans and colored South Africans as they challenge the state. This is the author and professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, Eddie Glaude, Jr. I think it's important to understand the kind of global complicity, the West's complicity in maintaining apartheid in South Africa. It represents one of the most brutal regimes, long-standing regimes of colonialism. Remember what's powerful about the mid-20th century is that we're beginning to see the decolonization of the quote-unquote third world. So not only with the independence of India a few decades earlier, the independence of Ghana, we're seeing independence movements across the continent as native peoples try to shake off the yoke of Western imperialism and colonialism. So this place in South Africa represents a kind of recalcitrance the idea that one group of people is inherently superior and therefore chosen to rule over another group of people is not new. Today, however, almost everywhere in the world, discrimination on such grounds is either formally disowned or legally discouraged. South Africa is an exception. The policy of apartheid, literally separateness, has been elevated by the government of South Africa from a mere theory of racial superiority to the law of the land. South Africa is still ruled by Afrikaans going into the 1980s. And so it is the poster child of European imperialism, of colonialism, of the West's commitment to white supremacy. And it is precisely, I think, in the convergence between the symbolic significance of the apartheid regime in South Africa and its relationship to Jim Crow America that reveals so clearly the moral bankruptcy of the West, particularly in its constructive engagement with the African regime. The lack of human dignity experienced by Africans is the direct result of the policy of white supremacy. White supremacy implies black inferiority. Legislation designed to preserve white supremacy and trenches this notion. Our complaint 
is not that we are poor by comparison with people in other countries, but that we are poor by comparison with white people in our own country, and that we are prevented by legislation from altering this imbalance. In the midst of Mandela's detailed, even painstaking testimony, the judge attempted to cut him off, saying, Well, Mandela, it is time for the court to adjourn. Mandela didn't even pause. He had come this far. He would not be deterred. And on he spoke. This is what the AMC is fighting. Our struggle is a truly national it is a struggle inspired by our own suffering and our own experience. It is a struggle for the right to live. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mandela had read his draft to his fellow defendants. Two lawyers urged him to modify his words, especially the last paragraph. As Mandela recalled, one advocate had said, If Mandela reads this in court, they will take him straight out in the back of the courthouse and string him up. Mandela's reaction? I felt we were likely to hang no matter what we said, so we might as well say what we truly believed. The atmosphere at this time was extremely grim, with newspapers regularly speculating that we would receive the death sentence. And so Mandela was determined to have his say, come what might. He recalled, I had been reading my speech, and at this point I placed my papers on the defense table and turned to face the judge. I did not take my eyes off Justice DeWitt as I spoke from memory the final words. During my lifetime, I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic 
and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. The courtroom Mandela remembered was still and silent. At the end of the address, I simply sat down, he remembered. I did not turn and face the gallery, though I felt all their eyes upon me. The eyes of the world would never fully leave Mandela. In the end, he would be convicted of conspiracy, and he would spend many of the next 27 years in prison on Robben Island. Yet, he would be freed, and the ideal for which he was willing to die would be largely realized. Good evening for 27 years, six months and six days he had been a prisoner. Tonight, he is a free man. Nelson Mandela, the leader of the African National Congress, he walked out of a prison on a gloriously sunny South African afternoon, and there is general agreement that his freedom begins a new era in South Africa. Apartheid would fall. Mandela would be president of South Africa. And the words that helped send him to prison would live forever. On the next episode of It Was Said, Season 2, Ronald Reagan commemorates the 40th anniversary of D-Day. Linking past and present, he harks back to the landing in Normandy to revive a sense of American greatness and of strength. Thank you for listening to It Was Said Season 2, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, sales, operations, and business affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far beyond the dark. We'll always be. One of the roads to leave.
Sophia Franklin and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.